Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 13, The Great Salmon Tour. We're going to give a shout-out to an old friend, Kara Davis, who introduced me to Peter not too long ago. And I invited Peter out to the Tidal Potomac Fly Rodders beer tie. It is June 10th, 2013. And major thunderstorms tonight, so not a big turnout. So Peter and I got a chance to talk and then sit down and do this podcast. You're going to hear a theme throughout this podcast that Peter needs financial support. I'd also like to request anybody in small business or owns business, friends, anybody who can help donate soft goods and gear for Peter and his travels. His website is greatsalmontour.org. Please go there, and if you can make any sort of financial donation, it's tax deductible. We all would be highly appreciative. So, without further ado, let's start the podcast with Peter. And this was recorded at Whitlow's on Wilson, June tenth, twenty thirteen. All right, we've got Peter here from the Great Salmon Tour. Peter, if you want to just introduce yourself and. Tell us who you are, what you're doing, and um, about the salmon tour, and then we'll go into a whole discussion about what you're doing. 
Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Peter Johnson. I have been working with salmon and trout uh, conservation for several years. And during that time, I got to know about the diversity of salmonids, and I got really interested in, in the different species and how, especially, these are connected to people, how people are using the cultural and social connection to these species. And I got this idea, like, I want to travel around the world and uh, document and see all these species, talk with the people that are, you know, connected, invested in them, and present that to the world and contribute to conservation of that diversity. I think it's important because it's part of our culture here in the Northern Hemisphere. It's a species or a fish that everybody knows about. Everybody have either eaten salmon or trout or they know about it. It's spread throughout the world. But very few people think of it in the context of biological diversity, conservation, or what's you know, happening with our world in those contexts. Even if you go to a restaurant, you know, the menu would only say salmon, even though we here in the U.S. alone, we have five different or actually six different species of salmon. I want to cover and talk about that for people, make film about it, and contribute in that way to conservation of that diversity on these different species. For those who aren't too familiar with the different species of salmon, can you talk about the geographic distribution, where they're located, like northern, southern hemisphere, where their native ranges are, and if you can... Tell the common names so people that, you know, you always go to a wedding and it's like fish, which is salmon or chicken. But like you said, it could be any of six varieties. So tell us about the different salmon you plan on studying. So salmon and trout belong to the family Salmonida, uh, Salmon, Salmonida. Altogether, it's about over 200 species of, of fish within in that family of fish. They are all native to the Northern Hemisphere. In other words, you can not find them in the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia or Southern Africa or South America, even though they have been introduced into those areas too. They're all cold water fish, uh, which obviously means that they are vulnerable to climate change and changes in, in temperature of the water and uh, also to effects that happens to that, you know, uh, dams, pollution, etc. Here in the U.S., we have five different species of what we call salmon. Actually, we have six different species of salmon. We have five Pacific salmon, which is the Chinook or King that most people are familiar with. We have the Coho salmon. We have the Shum salmon, uh, the Pink salmon, and uh, the Shum salmon. And then on the Atlantic side, we have the Atlantic salmon. The Atlantic salmon is also found in Europe and in the U.S. Uh, but besides the salmon species, we also have multiple trout species and other species of salmonids here in the U.S. or North America, which include rainbow trout, which probably most people are familiar with, seen in the grocery store or in the restaurant. We have here native for East Coast, which is the brook trout. And in addition to that, we have several species that people might not that be that familiar with. We have the cutthroat trout, the bull trout, and even the grayling and whitefish are part of that family of fishes. Many of these species are threatened or endangered. All our Pacific salmon within the lower 48 states, California, Washington, and Oregon, are on the endangered species list. Same as the Atlantic salmon. My, uh, what I'm trying to do is to contribute to conservation of these species. 
But it's not only in the U.S. we have these different species and species of salmon. Of the Pacific salmon, we also have the sherry salmon, which we find in Japan, especially, which is pa uh, part of the same genus, part of the Pacific salmon complex. Uh, however, that one we don't have here in the U.S. Uh, all these are part of very, very interesting diversity of fish. I think it's important, you know, to conserve these species. We'll start off also, you, you've got an accent, so we'll talk about where you're originally from and where did your fascination with salmon and their conservation derive? So I am originally from Norway and I moved here to the U.S. back in 2000 to start uh, working with uh, conservation, especially recovery of Pacific salmon in California. When you live in, in, in Europe, you have basically, you know, there are two species of salmonids are the main species. You have the Atlantic salmon, you have the brown trout, you also have the char in the lake or Arctic char in the lakes. But it's, you know, mainly it. And then you come over to the, you came over to the U.S. and suddenly you have like five different species of salmon. You have all these trout species, all this variation, all these different life histories. And, you know, I start, like, this is kind of interesting stuff, you know, it's, it's cool. And then one day I was in the office and my coworker asked me, what about the Hucho Hucho in Europe? And I was like, what Hucho Hucho? And it's the Samanid. And I'm like, what's Samanid? In, you know, in Atlantic salmon and brown trout. And it shows there's also other species of Samanids in different genus called Hucho Hucho. It's endemic to the Danube River in Europe. Highly endangered. It doesn't go into the ocean. It's totally river fish, but it gets at least two, get up to two meter big. Obviously, uh, huge trophy fish for those of ones that, yeah, they, they're huge. There's only one place in Europe where you can fish for them. It's in Slovenia, where it's still allowed. It's catch and release, take the picture and get your trophy. That spurred me to get the interest about like, oh, wow, you got like all these special fishes, all this different diversity. But more important, when I started to look at this, is that the different connections, social and cultural connections that people have to it. And I want to tell that story, not only about the diversity of these species, but also the cultural connection. And by saving, conserving these species, we're not only doing that for moral reasons, we also do it to conserve our own, you know, cultural diversity and our own well-being. And, and that's probably the main message that I want to get out through the Great Salmon Tour, the project I'm working on. What are some of the major things that I guess humans are doing that are affecting their population. And most people are familiar with dams. We've got the pebble mine, which is pretty prominent in fly fishing communities. What other things are negatively affecting salmon that you want to work on and, and research and get the word out on? On the local level, we have a lot of things that affect the salmonids, whether it's brook trout here in Virginia in our own headwaters here or Pacific salmon, actually anywhere where you have salmon, you have local effects like people straightening out rivers, taking out the riparian vegetation that gives shade, gives complexity to the rivers, gives the habitat that the salmon needs. You have erosion that puts silt and sm you know, small particles in that destroy the spawning beds of the salmonids. So that's on the local level. That happens throughout of, you know, all the habitat of, of salmonids, uh, and it's a huge problem. And then you have uh, more like industrialized effects like fish farming in Norway has been a huge problem with the fish lies. You have diseases. This is now being transplanted over to the British Columbia. And another consequence of that is like most of the fish farm in, in these areas are Atlantic salmon. And you get escapees and, and it goes into rivers and you've got non-native species that comes in. 
brown trout too that gets into these areas. And you've got diseases too, other diseases that are related to that. And then on top of this, what's happening now with climate change, obviously it's a cold water fish. With the changes that's occurring, these are, uh, with the climate, you know, those local uh, things that affect them are amplified. Like, for instance, removing riparian vegetation, which might shade the stream, uh, you know, increases the warming of the water. With changes in uh, precipitation, rain patterns and things like that, that increases uh, pollution and sediment and things getting into the stream. So you get an amplification of those local adverse effects uh, on the habitat of the Samanids through climate change going on. So it's a whole suite of things that needs to be addressed to try to conserve these species and protect them. And these things on the local level is now becoming more important with changes that we do have in climate. How do you plan on studying these fish? Are people going to be catching them, netting them? How are you going to be, I guess, getting up close and personal with the fish and also how with the people that lives revolve around them? So during this project, I contact people that are somehow connected to this fish. They might be scientists, might be the fishermen, uh, might be commercial fishermen, subsistence fishermen, anglers, whoever, you know, their connection with it. And through them, I get in, in, in up and close with, with the fish, whether it's an angler catching a fish, scientist catching it to study it, whatever it is. I go out with them and I join them when they do catch this fish. And also through that, I get in contact with them. I talk with them. I participate in their daily life for a short time, period of time, and I see their connection. I interview them and talk with them about this. And this, I'm short movies about it. I write about these stories, trying to publish it. So in that way, inform the public about all these issues that I've talked about and trying to make people connect too, you know, to, to the diversity. And actually, what I also want to do over the, through this project is to make people start to think when you go and buy a salmon, you look at these things that you think about, you know, diversity for, you know, whether you, the different species have different tastes, the different texture of, of the fish, they have different cultural come back, different ways of preparing it that is local. And just like you have now this brand of microbrews, you know, that's a brand in itself, you have all these different things, I hope that people catch up and actually start thinking about when they do have this, consume these species as, as food, that, yeah, this, you know, this is something special. Oh, this, this particular salmon was, or this particular species, I can like, oh, should I have a shum salmon or should I have a sockeye? What's the difference in taste? What should I put on the grill? What's best smoked? You know, is it smoked in the way they do in Alaska or the way they do it in Norway? All those things are important. And, you know, it it's, makes it much more interesting as a food source, too, for those that are not close enough with the salmon. When you're as regular consumers here in the city, it makes, I think it, it makes it much more interesting as a food source and making that understanding for people. You just mentioned how they taste differently and their different textures. That reminds me of the term terroir when it comes to wine, that there are people in the world that can taste a wine and be like, it came from this place, it has this nose. Do different salmon have different flavors and textures of the same species in different locations, or is it more just one species tastes differently and feels differently than another? Absolutely, they do have different. Like Each species have different taste and texture. But also, different spe- the same species might have different kind of life histories. Just to make an example, uh, up in Alaska, we have the Shum Salmon Run coming up the Yukon River. 
there's two runs in the early run, and they come up in the river and they spawn in the lower part of the Yorkan River. So when they enter the river, they are already starting to use up their fat content. They're ready to spawn. They've got their spawning collars. These fish are not very good for food uh, at all. So it's used for feeding dogs. And that particular run is called a dogfish. Uh, many people think shum in general are called dogfish. They're not. It's those particular runs that are called dogfish. Later on, you've got another run that goes much higher up into the Yorkan River. So when they enter the river they still have the fat content. They have not gotten their uh, mating colors yet. Those are used for human food. So you see that already there you have a difference. Same with the Chinook salmon, that when you, when you catch them in, at different times, they also have different runs. Some of them may or may not have a high fat content, different, even different part of the salmon. When they do, like the belly part of it, it has a high fat content, often used that it's cut and it's, prepared differently, it's smoked differently, it's uh, for, the, for the people up there, while the main filet of the salmon is used as, you know, different, has a different quality, a different way of preparing it based on, you know, within the, within the salmon. So yes, all of these different species have, have there and, and just have a different taste and, and different texture to their flesh. And, and if I'm going to give you uh, advice, just like, Atlantic salmon is commonly smoked, you, you buy it. But if i really going to recommend anyone, go for sockeye. Sockeye has the best smoked salmon, in my opinion. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Do you have an itinerary for this trip? Do you have a certain starting point, a certain end, things you're going to go off on, or is it just sort of making it up as you go? I definitely have an itinerary, what I want to do. Uh, the whole thing started in 2010. I went up to Alaska to cover subsistence fisheries by Native Americans there in the village along the Yokan River. And then I went down to California to cover more new, I'll say, modern fishery, uh, but has gone on for generations, small boat salmon fisheries along the coastal communities of California. I went to Bosnia and Herzegovina where I had entrepreneurs trying to uh, market the local trout, the local trout species on the market uh, for uh, tourists as, you know, something novel, something unique. And then I went to Mongolia, which is kind of a unique situation because the Mongolians don't actually use the fish, but they have a cultural connection. I think it is a spiritual connection to it. I think it's the daughters of the river god. They have the, we have the, okay, you have a species called the Huchotaiman, which is also get huge. It's like also really big. It's a trophy fish. A lot of people pay thousands of dollars to go and fish for this thing. And, and for the Mongolians, for locals there, they don't use it, but they have this spiritual connection. And there's a, a organization called the Tributary Fund that used that spiritual connection in conservation. So I want to follow up on these different uh, ways that people are connected to and the different species. Uh, so next to my itinerary now is to cover the scientists working on it. And it's a Mexican trout called the lost trout of Mexico in the Sierra Occidental. They, been looking for this trout for years. This group of Mexican and, and American scientists looked for it. Eventually, I found a few remnant populations that are highly endangered and need protection. I want to tell that story. 
I want to go back up and into the northwest where you have something called reef netting, which is a special way of fishing for instead uh, actually, Europeans adopted from the Native Americans, where you put a net on the bottom of the river, at the mouth of the river, and you raise it up. So it looks like basically like a reef. They have things hanging from it. So when the fish comes up, and they start coming towards the surface, and then you have men on on stilas and like high up and like hang up, and they look down into the river. And when they see the salmon, they shout out, and then they raise the net, and they catch the fish that way. Not very efficient, but the fish that comes up, again, have to do with the quality with it. This has a high-quality fish, because this is at the mouth of the river. These fish still have a high fat content and the high quality of the meat compared to the fishery that's farther up in the river. And then I want to go up into Canada, Arctic Canada, to have the Arctic char and the Inuits fishing for it and the culture around that. They have... During the winter, they go for the whale rows uh, out on the ice. When it then spring to come, they have the seals on the on the along the coast. And then in late summer and fall, they subside on on Arctic char in the lakes and the rivers coming up there. So they have this pattern that they follow, and where obviously salmonids are a very important part of that living. Without it, they will lose you know one of the link uh, of their li- livelihood. I also want to go to Spain where you have salmon cartels. The families divided up the rivers for management Atlantic salmon to go and fish there. You have to go through these cartels. It's almost like a little mafia. This, that's gone on for generations. And most people don't think about Spain as salmon for salmon, but they do have, or they had traditionally, big runs in these rivers. There's been a lot of effects on rivers. Their populations have crashed, but these cartels still exist. And it is, uh, you know, important cultural aspect. And that way, again, you know, each place have their way to conserve the species. Because salmon, especially, you know, has a short time period when you have a lot of resources that's available. But so during that short time, so you have to find some way to maintain, you know, keep that flesh to, for food for the next coming months, you know, smoke it, dry it, all these different ways. And they have they they put them in olive oil and can it and have different ways. They have their ways of doing it. It's just a cultural perspective. So so that's the part. And then I definitely want to hutcho hutcho is and then totally endangered species in in some. And I want to go for those anglers that are die hard enough to go out there during the winter. The fishing season starts in December, ends in February. You're there in the freezing winter of Europe, and you go there to catch the fish. It's fish catch and release, and you know get your picture of of this giant giant fish. And I want to, you know, for these people, that really means something. I want to show that too. And there's multiple other places, but that is the itinerary now for for, for this phase of of the project. So you've got a lot of travel. sounds like you need technology with cameras, computers. How is this all being funded? And we'll talk at the end about, you know, donations and everything, but where's the majority coming from? Are you getting help from corporations? Do you have any sponsors from outdoor companies? Some some of those like that. I wish I had much more than I have. Uh, a lot of this I actually paid for myself. Uh, my trip in 2010, I put out most of the my expenses. Most of the help I get is actually at at the end where I'm where I'm going. Like when I went to Mongolia, the tributary fund organization working with conservation of the time, and once I was there, they 
put me up, you know, they made, had a York put up for me to go there. They put me in contact with people, you know, so they invested a lot of resources and time for me to go there, which I, I, I couldn't even be able to do it without them. When I went up to Alaska with the Department of Fish and, uh, I guess it's Fish and Wildlife up there, Department of Fish and Wildlife in Alaska, they, they put me up with saying, put me in contact with the tribes, brought me in. The tribes helped, the tribal council there helped me and got the place for me to live, put me in contact with people, brought me up river and all those things. So I get a lot of, of help and support on those different areas. When it comes to the travel itself, obviously I put most of it out during the 2010. For the next level now, I'm looking into trying to get uh, sponsorships from, you say, outdoor firms, outfitters, actually fishing gear companies, is some of the things that I'm looking into, I'm being approaching, and some of them have responded relatively positive. Hopefully, I will get something out of that. And I also have had some people, you know, private donations and things that are coming in, which hopefully will help me to put in together the next phase. Because I to, to go and, and tell these next stories that I want to tell, I will be have to have some funding, not you know, to. I'm not getting rich, so it's not like paying, but, you know, for the expenses to travel and get out there. Once I get to the site, I got people like the scientists. I've been talking about Mexico. They say, like, once you get there, we'll get you out there, you know, take you to the area. We'll show you the fish, you know, all those things. Uh, Same up in in Washington, in Spain. I have this all set up. I've got a place to live and all all those things. So so it's, it's mostly covering the travel and getting out there. And I also hope that with the next part of the, the now, I have at least one or two people to come with me that will you know, take part in most of the filming and, and some of the technical parts that is related to doing this. Any troubleshooting you've had? Visas, people at the airport look at you like, hey, I'm coming here to look at fish. They look at you crazy. Any, you have to bribe any police officers? Any, any crazy stories also you might have? Well, not have to bribe anyone, fortunately, but yeah, I was I was in Bosnia, uh, I, yeah, Bosnia Herzegovina, going to Mongolia, and then suddenly, like some Russian police uh, or custom or whatever they were, I'm not really sure what they were, took me up to the office and start questioning about what I was doing and why I was going there and all that stuff. Uh, a more fun story though, when I, I came into Russia and going through, you know, the gate you know, the security, stuff like that. And, of course, you have all this equipment, you know, and it's obviously uh, looks suspicious having all these electronic things in there. So they open it up, and it's young girl, and she says, oh, I have to look through, your, you know, what's inside your suitcase. So you open it up and go look there, and I have this little bag with my microphone. My microphone is what's called a shotgun. It's kind of like a, a straight little thing laying in there, and the camera is there. And she opened this up and looks at it, and I think she misunderstood, really didn't understand. It was a microphone. I think she thought it was used for something else, more like, you know, for female pleasure. <laughs> and so she looked at it, and she smiles at oh, and then with the camera and everything, I thought she was thinking I was making a different kind of movie than I actually was making. Have you had to endure any customs, like fermented fish, any kind of, like, goat milk fudge? Like yak butter. Uh, has anybody offered you a dowry of goats for their daughter? Any kind of things like that? No dowry, but uh, in Mongolia, obviously, one of the things that they have there is uh, what they call milk vodka. It's fermented milk, which is then distilled in a very, very crude and primitive way. It tastes like old sour milk, hasn't 
alcohol content, obviously. And when you get to any family, anything like that, that's you know they give you that, so you have to, you know, have to drink. And uh, and I was like the alcohol in the area, and they actually. So when I was there, you know, the, like the my uh, driver, my interpreter, and and uh, it was a uh, like a warden kind of guy. And that worked there, and, and some of the other people, or like the last night, we uh, had a little party before I left where, you know, uh, milk vodka was an essential part of that. Uh, I got them to sing all the communist songs from the communist area, and uh, so that was kind of fun. Caught that on, on the video. Maybe I'll put that on, like, a secret part on my website or something for people to see, but uh, we'll see. And then, of course, the intestines of animal, which is actually considered a, an honor to serve that when you get some, you know, you, you get blood vessels, intestines, and stuff like that, which you have to eat. Um, so that uh, is very, but one of the things that was most interesting when it comes to the salmon, when I went in, in Alaska, the ways they, you know, cut and treat and prepare the salmon for use for drying and, and, and smoking, etc. Like I say, it's almost down to the science. It all depends, like, what kind of species of fish, what life history they're talking about. Is it the large fish, the small fish, has a high uh, um, content of fat, fat content, or uh, is it lean? All these things determines their way of, of you know, what they're going to do with this. And, and I had them explain and tell me and show me on camera, like, that whole process. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And we smoked salmon in Norway, too. But this was, like, totally different from what I'm used to. And I thought that was pretty interesting. All right, we're sort of running out of time. We're here at a bar. It's 11 p.m. And we could go on forever. So... Definitely, we're going to have to do a follow-up after your next trip. Maybe we can do like an ongoing interview process. Uh, where can people find you online? You've got a website. You've got Twitter, other social media. How can we go about getting you donations? How can people contact you if they've got uh, soft goods companies and other gear that they can help donate for the project? And if you want to give a shout-out to any companies that have helped you out so far just to you want to name some names that's always something we like to do on the podcast so uh, i do have a website uh, www.greatsalmontour.org org. so as it was mentioned uh, uh, twitter at uh, great salmon tour and if you go to my website i have a link where you can donate money i do have a fiscal sponsor so donations are uh, tax exempt uh, my fiscal sponsor is Fracture Atlas, and you find a link to that on, on the website. I haven't made a Facebook page for this project yet. I hopefully go up. I also hope, or I have actually published some stories, narratives, and also some films through an organization called Isiluan. It's uh, .org. You can go there and, and search for Gia, Great Salmon Tour and, and you will be able to find the stories uh, and some videos there. comes to donations, um, as I said, mostly I, I've been helped. And I want to give a big shout out to the Tributary Fund, an organization, you know, U.S. organization that helped me a lot when I went to Mongolia and also been very supportive of the project in general. And I will say, you know, there's a lot of, of, of business out there. Uh, urban anglers, I've been in contact with them. Maybe they come through, hopefully, to give some donations or, or, or sponsorship, I hope. You know, there's a lot of business there, I think, that would be interested and, and benefit from sponsoring this because, obviously, it's outdoorsy, it's fishing, 
it's uh, activities that I think you know any kind of business that has to do anything with outdoor or fishing, hiking, camping, anything like that would, would you know be be part of uh, of that. So I hope you know if any of those listen to me right now, I, I hope they all like oh maybe I'll try to contact Peter. My na- uh, my uh, contact information is uh, Peter underscore Johnson at well greatsamateur dot org. You'll find that on my website too, uh, contact information. So, yeah, thank you. Any last things you want to talk about that you may have come to your head, popped up, little cloud bubble above your head while we were talking that we didn't get a chance to go over? Uh, no, not so much more. I, well, a little bit what, what I'm trying to achieve here maybe and what, what the outcome, I hope the outcomes will be. Uh, first of all, what I want to achieve is to focus attention on, on you know, biologic diversity and issues are related here to the Northern Hemisphere and to Samanids and fish. And, you know, it's not only about, like I say, only about tigers in India or, you know, sea turtles in the Caribbean. It's something that is important for this part of the world where we live in, you know, here in the Northern Hemisphere. So I hope to, through, by telling these stories, I, you know, put attention and focus on that, but not only on biodiversity or conservation or like, you know, you know we should save the species kind of thing. I think the, the main part of my story, what I really want to get out there is this is related to us as people directly and the diversity of our own cultures and our own society because if these species go extinct or disappear or you can't use it, the people that are connected to them not only lose a way in an income or, or food for that matter, they lose a way of living and the connection to it. And that again, you know, creates social instability and, and, in, you know, people are in insecurity, uh, social insecurity. You know, the most obvious example is Native Americans in the Northwest, which where, where salmon is, you know, integral part of, of their whole culture and, and their traditions. And uh, and I think that's the, the main part I want to tell the story. Where it's you know, and it ranges not only for traditional communities like anglers who've been here on the fly, tie and beer tie and the fly tie, yeah, and and going out there and be able to fish for this fish and and even like the brook trout here in West Virginia, in Virginia and West Virginia for that matter. You know, being able to go out there and fish, go out in the headwaters here and fish for a native fish, something that belongs to this area, you know, the brook trout, I mean, that is something that is special for people. It's, it, it's something that belongs to them and something that are there to them. And, you know, it's shown by, you know, it's the state fish of those two states, Virginia and West Virginia. And obviously, we have that connection. And if you lose this fish, we lose that connection. We lose that part of our heritage. And, and that is the main main story is being told here. Absolutely fantastic. Well, Peter, safe travels. Give us some feedback and give me a call anytime you want to come back and follow up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep-sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.